near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Near-Death Experience Podcast, item number 300, July 1st, 2020. Tricia Barker's Near-Death Experience Interview, Part 1 of Two Parts. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official podcast and source of audio accounts for the NDERF. I'm your host, John Messer. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Tricia Barker, author of Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival, and Transformation. Tricia is a professor and a graduate of the University of Texas, Austin. She has been featured on the Dr. Oz Show, National Geographic Magazine, the biography channels I Survived Beyond and Back, Woman's World Magazine, Simple Grace Magazine, and The Atlantic. She is taught overseas and currently teaches in the U.S. at the college level. She has a YouTube channel where she conducts interviews. She created and organizes the annual online Near-Death Experience Summit, the third rendition of which will be held August 1st and August 2nd of 2020. We will be talking with Tricia about this year's summit as well as her book, Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, survival and transformation which chronicles and recounts trisha's nde in 1994 during her senior year of college because trisha's story and insights are so fascinating our discussion became quite lengthy so i am presenting it to you in two parts part two will be released as item number 301 on july 2nd 2020 links to the near-death experience summit Trisha's book and websites, and the numerous other items mentioned in the interview are in the show notes of both episodes. Before we start, I want to say thanks again to all of you for listening, sending us feedback, and posting reviews, and especially to those of you who help keep the show financially viable by supporting us at patreon.com slash ndepodcast. Please visit our website ndepodcast.org, where you will find contact information for Chaz and me, as well as a link to our sister podcast in Spanish for the NDERF, Experiencias Cercanas a la Muerte. And now, part one of my interview with Trisha Barker. Trisha Barker, welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast. Thank you so much, John. I'm excited to chat with you. Ah, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Okay, so first, I want to acknowledge how well written your book is. It's melted butter, Tricia. I would read some of the pages, 
and then I would reread the page just because of how well it was written, how well it flowed. It's so enjoyable. And then secondly, I want to thank you for being so honest and upfront about so much deeply personal information about your life and your challenges. You say in your story, the divine is ever present, but so are the challenges of our ordinary lives. So let's start with the survival part of your story. Complex trauma is a big part of Trisha Barker's life. Uh, these include, uh, just take a list here from your book, in no particular order, not always you, but students too. Abusive parents, rape, shaming victims, teenage pregnancy, pedophilia, drug abuse, spousal abuse, mental health, depression, stalking, PTSD, losing children, gangs, broken bodies, broken spirits, suicidal ideation. That is a lot. So thankfully, you experienced angels in the OR to help you deal with this. But not everyone gets that opportunity. So let's talk about, I don't know, your early life. What yeah. brought you to where you were before you went to college? Well, thanks, John, for that intro and for acknowledging that I love writing. And my background is I studied English in college and I have an MFA in creative writing. So I love poetry, love the written word, loved it since I was just uh, 14 or 15 growing up in the country and reading a ton of books. So I wanted to create a book that might cross over into mainstream America and might might reach some people who wouldn't normally think about spiritual experiences and might start looking for healing because I think that healing, that spiritual healing is the final component that ramps up psychological healing, all that we do to help ourselves make it through difficult times. And, and yeah, that list, I, I experienced quite a few things on that list that you read off, but not all of them. And some of my students uh, experienced growing up in much more dire situations than I did. And so it was really, I was prepared, I guess one might say, based on my own background, to at least have some empathy and an inkling of what my students were going through in some low-income districts. But, but yeah, my own childhood, you know, I, I say this fairly frequently, and I have so much more forgiveness and love for my parents now after writing the book and putting it out there than perhaps I did in moments of writing it. I know that, you know, it's very challenging to be a young mother and my mother was a young mother isolated in the country, but I did experience physical and emotional abuse as a kid and I was very isolated and there wasn't a lot of psychological help for my mom. There wasn't a lot of knowledge uh, at that time period about what could be done to help her. And so that background allowed me to work with students and some of their parents, actually, who, who were um, lost and, and struggling. So that was the beginning of the story. And, and what, what the big contrast is, is, yeah, we have these earthly experiences that can be so challenging. But, you know, that moment in my near-death experience when I felt God's love, that immediately erased all the things that were lacking. So if your parents didn't give you perfect love in that presence of God, oh my gosh, it's there. And I think the great healing 
in my life and I hope in other people's lives can be, okay, whatever is missing here, whatever the trauma is here, look to God, look to the spirit realm to add that extra energy and that change. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm reminded of the saying, I, I used to complain I didn't have any shoes until I met the man who didn't have any feet. Yeah. You grew up pretty tough, but then you got to use that to help you who were in worse situations than you were in. Oh, definitely. You know, there were some toxic situations that blew my mind, you know, that these parents even existed. So years ago, I was in this support group, and, and they, it was a spiritual support group, and one of the men in the group said, you know, okay, my mother was abusive, but she was 60% awesome. <laughs> you know, like it was just 40% of the time that things were a little wonky. And, and, you know, I can kind of agree with that. There were things about my background that were lovely and wonderful. And my mother taught me to appreciate nature, to pray, to, you know, focus on health and, and good, healthy eating habits. And then some of my students grew up in environments that were hard to even recognize. I mean, I had one student who his mother had run away, his father was diabetic and an alcoholic and spent most of his time at a bar and they didn't have a washing machine, they had dirt floors and the kids were basically just abandoned. And school was everything to these kids. I mean, school was their way out and they had no support on any level. And when you work with students like that, or students whose parents, you know, are in and out of jail or violent to a frightening degree, I mean, you're really working with some deeply traumatized kids. And it's wonderful when they can make a change and see a future for themselves. And when you're just a little part of that, oh my gosh, it's it's the best feeling in the world. So take us up to what happened, how you got to experience your, your uh, NDE? Yeah, so I got out of a small town in East Texas, and that alone was a feat. I got a lot of scholarships, and I was able to go to the University of Texas at Austin. It's a big university and kind of a party town, and at first I was doing well, and then I kind of lost my way in college, and I was on my way to run the Austin 10K, which was the symbol to me of getting my life back together and graduating, and it was, it was meant to be this beautiful moment of hope. Well, on the way to run that race, I experienced pretty much a head-on collision and I broke my back in three places and I knew that that things were pretty dire physically because I couldn't lift up to get my driver's license from the glove box and and car registration and all that and it it was a freaky moment you know you, you don't expect something like that to happen when you're young and healthy and I knew that physically I was in pretty bad shape so what happened after that was I was at the hospital for quite some time and then I was taken in eventually for emergency spinal surgery and I was agnostic. So I mean, I, I made a couple of foxhole prayers, you know, the kind that you're like, oh God help me. But largely my entire mind's focus was on the physical, my classes, my car, my body, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to walk? 
there wasn't this connection to the spiritual that I have now. Like I know the spiritual world as this real place. And before that accident, I did not know that. It was really, you know, there, I didn't have much faith. I didn't have much hope. And I definitely didn't have a connection. But when I was taken in for surgery and I was under, at some point, and probably they had been operating on me for quite some time, my spirit form lifted up out of my body. And I saw my back, I saw my physical body on the table, and I saw my back was opened up, my hip was opened up. There were a lot of people in that, that room, two surgeons and, and others, assistants, maybe surgical tech assistants and the anesthesiologist. And I was way up above their heads and, and just kind of in the corner of the room. And I have to tell you, I was excited. I mean, my first feeling out of body was not, uh, this is a dream. I mean, like I knew the minute I had popped out of my body, oh, this is the spiritual reality. This is reality, John. This spiritual place is more real than the physical world. And I knew that in those first few moments because I was watching my body and I knew that was my body and it surgery looked a little bloodier than I imagined it might. <laughs> there was just, I, I have a very large scar on my back. So I was opened up quite a bit. And as I was looking at myself, I thought, huh, yeah, I didn't feel that much of an attachment to the physical body because I knew my spirit form to be the real me, if that makes sense. And when I looked at my body a bit more, I saw there were these very large beings at the end of the bed. And I call them angels, but initially I just called them intelligent beings of light. I just knew that they communicated with telepathy and they sent this light into my spirit form and I didn't need to hear words. I just understood immediately that they were highly intelligent and there to help. And there for my healing too, because they were almost a little bit playful. At some point they said, watch this. And they shot this light through the back of the surgeons and through their hands and into my body. And I knew that they were assisting the surgeons and maybe they were even helping out, assuring me that I would walk, that all the pieces of bone that had fractured would be picked out of my spine, that I'd walk and, and run later. I was afraid going into surgery because I had lost feeling in my left leg and that was terrifying. <laughs> and and uh, so on the other side, they were like, yeah, yeah, you'll walk, it'll be fine. What happened then though was the monitor flatlined and I knew, oh, okay, I was out of body and now this is technically death. And I didn't know why I died. I just knew that the monitor flatlined. I didn't want to watch if I was revived. And so the next parts of my near-death experience happened. And that was, initially it just felt like, I don't want to be in this room. And so the spirit form could just go through walls. I went through a couple of walls and I ended up in this corridor where there's a vending machine and I saw my stepdad get a candy bar. And, and many people have asked me why I've been interviewed by, you know, major outlets. And researchers love verifiable details. So this was a verifiable detail that consciousness survives the body. And I saw my stepdad get a candy bar out of the machine and I didn't really know him that well. And I thought, oh, 
I hope he has a good life. I hope he's good to my mom. I don't know if I'm coming back at this point. You know, the, the angels said I would run and I would walk. But as I got farther into the near-death experience, I just identified as my spirit form, not so much my body. And I, I kind of was saying goodbye to him. And then I flew above the night sky and I felt this oneness with everyone. And I wish there's certain moments in my near-death experience that I wish I could just energetically transfer to others because I think it would make the world a better place. And the oneness experience was definitely one of those moments because when you look into the heart and soul of most people, they're good. You know, and there was this, this moment where I just like, melded with everyone I'd ever known. And I just said, hey, be better, enjoy your life, just have a wonderful life, I love you, goodbye. And this was anyone who I'd known. So someone who gave me a coffee at a coffee shop or someone I just passed on the street that basically my soul just wanted to say, hey, enjoy this life. And that was my way of saying goodbye. Some people in near-death experiences, and I've interviewed a lot of them, have felt a oneness with the entire world. But for whatever reason, it, for me, it was just my life and then the city of Austin, where I was at the time. Then I had this other transition, and time is relative in that space, and, and so is movement. So you can move very quickly, you can be in one place and then move to another place. So I was in a night sky and then suddenly I felt like I was maybe in outer space or just this area with a lot of, it felt like I was traveling. Uh, like there was a lot of um, stars and, and beauty. And in that space, I didn't feel alone. I felt as if maybe there was an intelligence or God was coming toward me on some level with this divine intelligence. And I felt supported and at some point I felt like this intelligence wanted me to review my life and the life review was pretty quick. I was 22 at the time of my death and so I went back to childhood and I saw what was good about childhood and what was wonderful is that I prayed and that I spent time in nature and it was as if God was saying, hey, that's good. Do more of that. <laughs> do, do more of that um, peaceful meditation. As a child, I, I actually had a moment where I, I asked, hey, if there's a God, and then, and I was probably like five or six, then I want to see some rabbits. And so I went into this pasture, and I closed my eyes and meditated for a while. And when I opened my eyes, there was a family of rabbits playing around me with little babies. And, and so that moment was something that was prominent in my near-death experience. It was if God was saying, hey, you know, that faith was good. Uh, remember that. So I heard statements like, remind them to go to nature. Love is all that matters. Be like a little child. But in that, in, in, in that life review, though, there were some moments that were perhaps not that great. And they weren't the ones that most people would think, you know, the I lived a kind of a worldly life for, from about 19 to 22 and went to a lot of parties, experimented with drugs. And, and God didn't really say, you know, oh, that's wrong. You're going to go to hell for doing that. It was more like, hey, be better to yourself. <laughs> like all of that kind of stuff was brushed aside as if it wasn't of God. 
so it didn't matter. And I think sometimes people who are really far down the line with addiction and, and these types of things maybe you're shamed. And I think that love of God that's healing is more along the lines of love yourself, be better to yourself. At least that's what I felt in that realm. But what, what I was held accountable for was how I treated others and the situation that I was shown. I look back and I kind of laugh because I was 22 and it's, it's a young person's way of, of uh, viewing the world that they often care about fashion or, or what they're interested in. But what I noticed was that there was this lovely couple that I worked with at a, a restaurant and I saw into their hearts and I saw that they went home and prayed for me and they thought I was depressed and they didn't understand why I didn't want to be their friends. And then I saw my reaction to them, which is, oh, they're not cool. Look at the shoes they wear. They're older than me. They didn't go to university. They don't like the same movies. I just don't have time for them. And that is such a, you know, it's a silly way to behave and to look at people, but, but people do behave based on fads or, or these people are like me and not like me. And that's, that's what I saw I was doing. And I thought, oh, I should be different. I should really look into their hearts and love people with good hearts and aren't they amazing for taking the time to actually pray for me and send me good energy? And I felt ashamed actually of myself in that moment. So it wasn't the moments of, you know, experimenting with drugs or, or anything like that, that I felt shame for. It was how I treated others. And that was what I wanted to change. I wanted to be better. And I wanted to create uplifting environments where people felt good around me where people were, and a lot came from that moment. It was almost as if my soul was, was learning a, a deep lesson. The next part of the near-death experience, I transitioned into this heavenly realm. And a lot of near-death experiencers who are there in that realm see loved ones. And I saw my grandfather. There's a little weird part of my near-death experience, which is he had a truck there. And so sometimes people think, well, that isn't, that's weird. Why would a truck be in heaven? <laughs> and uh, I think he manifested it to show me that everything in that realm was made new and beautiful and healed. So everything that we lose here, everything that dies here, everything that decays and falls to pieces, it can be whole and beautiful and alive there, even a truck. <laughs> and it it was something I did with my grandfather. We would drive through pastures and I'd sit in the back of the truck. And so I did that as well. He looked so full of life and probably about 35 or 40 and his eyes just shone with light, kind of like the angels. His skin was just beautiful. When I knew him, he was in his seventies and had leukemia and had become very thin and he died when I was 10, but there he was full of vitality and full of great peace. And, and even to this day, I feel that he wants me to remind people of heaven, that our loved ones continue on, that the people who gave us unconditional love in this life are still going to be there to give us unconditional life when, or unconditional love when we pass. So I spent some moments with my grandfather in this beautiful green grass. And at some point, he turned to me and he said, 
he was driving the truck and he leaned out the window and he was like, do you want to continue on? And I knew that continue on meant go to that light of God. So my soul started flying immediately towards that light of God because I was really excited. There was something about that idea, like who wouldn't want to meet God? This is fascinating and wonderful and joyous. And so my soul is flying in that direction and I'm feeling prayers trying to pull me back and I could hear the words and everything that was said and felt in that prayer. So I know this gives comfort to people who have prayed for someone who has died and I want them to know that person, their soul does feel the prayers, even if they don't come back. Cause I knew who loved me, who wanted me to stay, but then there was God up ahead. So I remember thinking, Oh, whatever, you know, you'll be fine. And I've got to go see God. And as I was flying towards that light of God, everything about my life just fell away. So anyway, that my parents had not been there for me or loved me just suddenly I felt so loved by God and, and all that remained was their love. Uh, so any, any goodness is all that I was taking with me. All the good things that had happened and everything that was not of God, kind of like the darkness or just devoid of God, was what I left behind. And then God was also filling me with this incredible energy. Like I call it a an atomic bomb of love. It's just the best feeling ever. So any romance or any thing on this earth that I thought was pleasurable and wonderful, that was a million times better. And I just remember thinking, oh, I've got to stay here. No, 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 this is great. I don't want to return. And I just want to feel like this forever. And I want to get closer and closer to God. At some point I was stopped though. And, and many near-death experiencers talk about a moment where there's a barrier and it was like an energetic barrier. I couldn't move any closer to God. and and I didn't see a godlike figure. I just saw light. And one of the ways that communication happens there, I think, is telepathy even through God. And so it was like God's voice was a vibration or it boomed within my soul. And I heard, look down. And I looked down to, and it was really interesting. I don't think I wrote about this exactly, but it was as if clouds parted and I just got this bird's eye view of this portion of the earth and there was a stream a river and all these uh souls were along the river some of them were made of light and some of them were shadowed by darkness and god clearly communicated that i was going to go back and work as a teacher and i remember thinking oh no 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 <laughs> i know all about that life down there I do not want to go into teaching. That's not a lucrative career. I grew up poor. Forget that. No way, God. I'll just stay here. <laughs> and I'm not doing that. And I guess maybe it was amusing to God, or maybe that's just where the experience ended. But in that moment, my soul was flung back into my body, and it felt like this dark wind was pulling me back. And that was the last moment that I had in the afterlife. And so of course that stands out as you might imagine <laughs> if, if you get career guidance from God. And so you just remember waking up in your body post-operatively? Yeah. So I remembered the experience. There were even coming out of surgery and, and groggy and um, the 
the nurses were handing me ice chips and my throat felt sore. And as soon as I could speak, I just could not wait to ask my surgeon if, about how long I died. The, the thing that was really also strange is immediately I didn't feel like myself. So I felt like Trisha Barker was this identity that I had to come back to. But I was so much more than that out, outside of my body. And it felt really kind of limiting you know, to be back in this body. There are some people who joke about, you know, how the consciousness is so, you know, so much more. You feel so much smarter out there. And then I remember thinking, oh, God, I have to come back and be her. This is just really annoying. <laughs> you know, the, there's so much more to connect with. So I had trouble identifying as myself at first. and then. Then I asked the surgeon about how long I was dead, and she wasn't as open as I'd hoped. I'd hoped since I saw angels working through them that maybe they were aware on some level that of these angels or they'd want to talk about my death, but she confirmed that they felt as, or that she almost lost me for a couple of minutes, but she focused on, you're getting blood transfusions, the surgery was successful, let's talk about that, <laughs> let's not talk about this stuff, but oh, I was annoying. Uh, you know, I was talking with every nurse about God and, and that's all I could talk about. It really was super focused on that near-death experience. So let's delve into your NDE. Uh, fascinating to me was you actually had an out-of-body experience before you flatlined for about two and a half minutes. You were aware you were out of your body before you were clinically dead. Some people say that OBEs are not the same as NDEs, and perhaps not all of them are, but yours seem to be similar. What can you tell us about the difference between your OBE just before you flatlined and then your actual NDE? Yeah, they were both profound, and I think the awareness that I was more than my physical form happened in the OBE, but when the body died, I felt almost grossed out by it. It just looked like this piece of bloody meat, you know, and, and it just, it didn't look like me. Like I knew my spirit form to be way more important. And I think that the difference between a near-death experience and just an out-of-body experience is, you know, I've had out-of-body experiences after that and I was aware I was coming back to a healthy body and I knew that I was still connected to it. But there, there was the potential or the possibility of not coming back. At least, at least the spirit kind of thought that. And and maybe some moments are dicey enough in a surgery that there's a possibility, you know, that it could go either way. And so maybe the soul is is somewhat disconnecting in a near death experience from the idea of continuing on in that body. So I felt a definite disconnection to the body. That was not me. And done with that, you know, in, in a sense. So when you were in the afterworld, you looked down, the clouds parted, you saw a river and you saw souls along the river. Did you feel like the, these souls were people that you were going to be interacting with or that you had interacted with or ancestors or? Yeah, I think they were students or people that I would meet after coming back. And I was shown and certainly I've had more of a mission in my life in the classroom than any other part of my life. And in the classroom, I believe God works through me, angels work through me, and I go in 
believing I'm protected and I go in believing that no matter what a student throws at me that that's just darkness I'm there to connect them with light and we're just here to get through this and and there's something greater at play and it took me many years decades to come to the awareness that well that's a pretty good way to live all of life you know that's a brave way to live life but I lived my profession as though I had this heavenly mission and I, I think most of the lights that I saw were students that God was trying to say, hey, some of them will be depressed, some of them will be lost, some of them will just have a certain darkness around them, and your mission is to remind them of through knowledge, through power, through presence, through through inspiration, whatever it takes, that they can be connected to God. And I didn't, didn't really talk about God, per se, because, you know, schools are secular. But what I did is I talked about themes in poetry and literature. And then in each classroom, I told them the story of my near-death experience. And this is long before I had a book out or had been interviewed anywhere. I told students that story because I thought, oh, every teacher goes off topic <laughs> at least a couple hours here and there in a semester or a year. And and if I go off topic, it's going to be that story. And I tried to tie it to a theme in literature. And students were largely open, you know, especially a class of seniors during 9-11, because many of them signed up to go into the military. And, and maybe they were thinking about their own mortality. And hearing that story maybe strengthened their faith or opened their minds or made them think about things in, in a different way. But a lot of times these stories are told openly, you know, at IMS conventions and, and place spiritual um, groups, but it's kind of rare to tell it in a classroom <laughs> in public schools and colleges. In fact, I thought maybe I could get in trouble, but I wasn't ever in trouble for that. I think students were just fascinated, if that makes sense. Coming back to while you were on the other side, you say that the messages from these angels came to you as uh, completed thoughts and feelings, not individual words. And you explain that what you most experienced outside of your body in the operating room came in the form of immediate impressions, the way a child sizes up whether an adult is trustworthy or not. Can you give an example of some of how we might experience completed thoughts and feelings without words in this realm? That's a great question. I think intuition happens like that. So many people have felt a moment where they feel like, ooh, this situation is off. And then later they, they find out that they're accurate or they don't trust this particular person or they really trust a particular person for some reason. And then they find out later, oh, this is a best friend or you know, this is someone very dear to me. So I think a lot of times we are picking up spiritual information, uh, physical clues, like all kind of things at one time. And this hits us. I uh, was interviewed by Bill Bennett, who he has a documentary out, and it is um, the personal guidance system, PGS. And he was someone who basically he was driving along and he heard this voice say, stop your car. And in that moment, he thought, that's ridiculous. There's no one on the road. I don't need to stop my car. But he did it. And when he did it, this truck 
just blew through the intersection out of nowhere and it would have killed him in his small car. And he thought, what is intuition? And he went all over the world trying to figure this out. Well, we've all had moments of intuition and maybe we discredit them and just blow it off because it just helped us survive. But I believe that most human beings, you know, if they have made it through enough years on this earth, there's some bit of information that they've picked up on and not fully processed, and that's their intuition at work. You say the light emitted from the eyes of the angels poured into your spirit body. Can you give a little bit of a description of these angels for the people? Yeah, that's a good question. People want me to describe them, and it's difficult because they're tall. They're eight or nine feet tall, and don't know how to describe the light that they're composed of. If I tried to break it down, it doesn't even make sense. Is it yellowish, grayish, whitish? It's just this unusual light. You know, in some ways it looked as if it was, they were statuesque. And then in other moments, it just looked as if they were, uh, you could stick your hand right through them. You know, like they were just composed of light and composed of, uh, this substance of light. The thing that hit me though is whatever their consciousness was, it was highly intelligent. And I felt honored and in awe that they were there for me. I thought, wow, why would these super intelligent, beautiful beings take the time to make sure that I'm going to be okay and to help me? And I just felt honored by their presence. And maybe if we all were more aware of our angels, we'd be, we'd feel a little safer. We'd feel a little more guided by intelligence from that other side. You felt the prayers of your parents and others while you were in the operating room. And you felt that the prayers really mattered most when they were said with love. Can you tell us what you experienced about that? Yeah, so the sincerity of the prayer seemed to make it stronger and the love seemed to make that prayer stronger so if someone says a half-hearted prayer it's not a bad thing <laughs> it's, it's still good but a prayer with a particular energy of love seems to touch the spirit more so if you're actually praying for someone as they die uh, just sending your love even if it's not a prayer if you just sit there and you send the energy of your love to that person i believe they will feel it. They will feel love. Like love is the currency that we can take into that realm. Oh, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> NDs are brief in comparison to eternity, even in comparison to our lives here. Can you give us any insights into how descriptions from NDEers can give us brief glimpses into the afterlife? Uh, how it might compare with a lifelong vision of eternity? Yeah, so when my father died, and I read about that at the end of the book, I felt his spirit, and I was curious about his spirit, and, and I've stayed in contact with him, and there are some things I didn't put in the book because I didn't fully understand them, but I wanted to understand his experience in the afterlife. There's a, a book called The Afterlife of Billy Fingers, and what that author writes about in there, a lot of that kind of rings true to what I was hearing and experiencing in that spiritual realm from my father. One, one of the things that happened early on 
was, it, I wouldn't call it purgatory, but he had a very long life review. And it seemed as if he had to look at every moment of his life. My life review seemed really short, like this little glimpse of a moment where God was like, hey, be better in this area. <laughs> and, and maybe the other areas, if I would have stayed dead, we would have spent more time on those, on how my soul might have improved its way of being in the world. But I felt as if my father had to see how every little decision of his free will affected numerous people, you know, like that butterfly effect, how the whole world might have changed from these tiny little moments in his life. And I thought, that's heavy. <laughs> and I think at some point I even said, dad, you know, that sounds kind of painful. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, I'm held in love. I'm supported in love, but it's just part of the learning process that, and he called it universe school. He's like, you know, that I'm going to go through all kind of learning over here. And there seemed to be so much to learn. Other, I occasionally do medium readings and a lot of spirits will come in and say that they want to know how everything works on this planet from the beginning of time till now. And they want to see every little detail of it. So apparently, you know, this world and and other universes, there's a lot of learning that can go on. And people, souls, like to understand, I guess, their place and time and how everything works. Yeah, I guess if you just think about this world alone, if you wanted to understand everything about everything in this world, it would take quite a few lives. You'd have to come back and experience in different time zones, uh, different time frames, uh, from different perspectives. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, and the learning can happen very quickly over there, but it's still, I think, maybe people, maybe souls zone in on, you know, one particular time period. Why did that happen? And, and, and then their role. Are you familiar at all with Michael Newton and Life Between Lives? Yes, yes. Would you, say, would you say what your dad was describing was similar to what those people on hypnosis described? Yeah, that's fascinating. And this is my study after the book, but because when you put a book out there, the real joy of it is connecting with all these different people who are interested in these topics. And I connected with the man who does past life regressions, and I'd never done one before. All I can say is that after I did a few, the effect was powerful. And then I've talked with many people who've had these past life regressions and they really shift something in people's lives. Like there's something really powerful and profound about, about that. And then of course the in-between lives, uh, like Robert Schwartz, I think does that as well. There's, there's all kind of people who, who work in that way. And I, I, I have so much respect for that type of work now. Talk to me a little bit about that. This is totally out of my notes, but talk to me a little bit about that. So since you have experienced near-death experience and you've had past life regressions and you've talked with other people who've been in past life regressions, um, how does it help? Should people get that? Should people partake in those? And how does it help? What should they try and accomplish? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I'll use someone else's example and one of my own, but Dr. Jen Holden, she's in my area and she's a researcher of near-death experiences at a meetup she shared, and I hope, I'm sure she's fine with me sharing this, but she had a um, regression and she did the perfect thing for regression. It was a small issue. It was a pain 
in her leg or hip and she did a regression around that and she found out that she was in the civil war and she had her leg blown off in another time period and and then this fiance didn't marry her and but she was a him at <laughs> that life and and uh there was a lot of anger around that leg and in the regression when she forgave the moment forgave the war forgave you know all that pain she came back to her body after that regression and very quickly that physical issue was healed so sometimes we store memories from past lives in our bodies sometimes there's a an emotional issue that we're trying to get through sometimes there's a blockage to success that might be from a past life that we might be holding and if you can pick a really small issue or something that you're trying to make a breakthrough in I think a regression can just be fascinating in how it changes your your experience in this life because this is the life that's important like I don't think you should get hung up on you know oh this happened to me in another life like you should perhaps use it to make a breakthrough in this life absolutely and for those who aren't familiar with that if you back up a few episodes I don't know the episode number but Linda Gabriel life between lives where I talk with her about that you'll know a lot of details and you can you can get grounded in that a bit there so let's come back to you're in the afterworld and you're talking with God and you have a little disagreement about what God wants you to do for your life and what you want it reminds me a lot of uh, Kimberly Clark Sharp's uh, NDE and how she described that you can argue with God but God's gonna win <laughs> definitely debate with our creator it's not like fire and brimstone don't argue with me little girl <laughs> yes and Kimberly Clark Sharp and I have some things in common because we died around the same age we're both that you know when you think of a 22 23 year old there's they have more in common with teenagers than not sometimes you know they're still quite so young you know as as time has gone on I look back at my consciousness then and I think you know how ridiculous to argue with God but but at that point in time I was looking at oh I have a long life on this earth and I don't want to spend it teaching that doesn't sound like something I want to do but I didn't know that God knew better at that moment God knew that I'd enjoy every single moment in the classroom so every teacher who enjoys their profession will tell you that yeah, maybe they don't always like their administration maybe they don't like the paperwork but the minute they shut that door and they're there with the students oh that's their joyful place and that's the way I felt that you know I wrote the book honestly not every uh, fellow teacher or administrator was supportive or kind some were some weren't and that's just life but the magic happened in my classroom and I'm so glad that God gave me that mission because when I wrote the book I looked back and I thought the happiest moments of my life were in the classroom those those were such fun moments to write about and honestly they were such fun moments to live no matter how challenging they were I felt so alive and so supported as a teacher if that uh, makes sense that basically God's energy carried me through and I think had I chosen something else I, I would have been miserable <laughs> you also interview people um, on your YouTube channel and I'll put links in the show notes folks uh, in your interview of Jim Bruton you mentioned that 
your soul knew months before you were going to die that you were going to die. You, you saw your tombstone? Tell us about that. We'll pick up from that point in the interview on item number 301. Until then, this is your host, John Messer, reminding you it's all about attitude and gratitude, and our attitude should always be love.